Cryptocurrencies today serve two purposes, store of value and speculation. The application infrastructure that has been built around cryptocurrencies is mostly to support these use cases. At some point in the future, perhaps cryptocurrencies can be used as a global medium of exchange, a type of currency that's accepted at the grocery store. Perhaps we will use the blockchain for supply chain management and as a universal ledger for real estate ownership. But today, none of this is a reality. Cryptocurrencies are mostly used for speculative trading. Users buy and sell different cryptocurrencies and stablecoins looking to make short-term profits. And the markets for trading cryptocurrencies have evolved to have a sophistication that looks like the centralized markets of derivatives and leverage-based day trading. But in some ways, they are a lot stranger than these centralized markets. The term decentralized finance refers to this phenomenon of cryptocurrency lending markets. Decentralized finance increases the volume of speculated capital by providing liquidity through smart contracts. This short-term liquidity is often collateralized by a volatile cryptocurrency such as Ethereum, creating an opportunity for a type of market participant called a liquidator. Tom Schmidt is an investor with Dragonfly Capital, a crypto asset management firm, and Tom joins the show to describe the dynamics of decentralized finance. Tom works with Hasib Qureshi to make investments in cryptocurrency startups and cryptocurrencies, and I've had several spirited conversations with Hasib. It is no surprise that his colleague is also somebody with whom I can have spirited conversations. The idea of decentralized finance is very interesting, and we don't go into the minutiae and the complex details. Tom has written some great blog posts about decentralized finance, so if you're looking for some of the nittier, grittier details, you can go to those blog posts. It gets pretty technical if you go too deep down that rabbit hole, so I will leave that to the readers. But this conversation is more for an overview of people who want to know what decentralized finance really even means. I hope you enjoy the conversation, because I sure did. Tom Schmidt, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jeff. The idea of decentralized finance, this is a common term in the crypto community today, and DeFi describes the idea that the traditional abstractions of finance can be rebuilt in the crypto world or on top of the crypto world. And the most common application today is lending. Describe how loans are made on top of the crypto ecosystem. Yeah. So DeFi, as you mentioned, sort of describes a broad set of different pieces of software, different protocols that run on top of Ethereum today that construct these sort of what we call financial primitives. So things like lending, things like exchange, things like derivatives that can be composed and built up and linked together or built into new applications to build products that people like you and I might be more familiar with. So in the context of lending, what we're seeing today are a couple different protocols that all sort of revolve around this core concept of collateralized lending. So in collateralized lending, unlike maybe unsecured lending, when you go to a bank today and use your credit score to allow them to you know, loan you money, you place down a asset of value that is greater than, than the value of the loan. And that allows you to, for example, get working capital if you have something that's pretty illiquid or something that you don't want to sell, or if you want to lever up on the underlying asset. So let's say you have a piece of ether. Let's say you have some ether today. You can deposit that ether in a smart contract. So it's totally non-custodial. It's totally audible and transparent. And 
withdraw a, a smaller amount of another type of asset. So a lot of people will withdraw DAI, which is the stablecoin that, that Maker produces, for example. It's pegged to the US dollar, so it, it feels like you're trading the US dollar, but in a totally trustless way. Or something like USDC, which is a centralized stablecoin produced by Coinbase and Circle, which is actually backed with US dollars. So two different types of assets that both trade at the US dollar. I can withdraw a smaller amount than what I deposited using this piece of collateral to incentivize me to repay the loan. So I put down $150 worth of Ether. I withdraw $100 worth of USDC. And then I can use that to, for example, use or potentially buy more Ether if I want to go really long on Ether. So that's sort of collateralized lending in a nutshell. And I think it's important to note that we're not talking about I mean, the first time I heard DeFi, decentralized finance, I was like, okay, so these are like permissionless small business loans for people in Africa who are, you know, unbanked and they're getting onto the the crypto ecosystem because they can get the permissionless finance that they need to start their fruit stand or whatever. That is not what's going on today. I would say not. I think there's two real schools of thought when it comes to DeFi stuff. A lot of people are in the whole bank the unbanked category, where it is people who are, you know, fruit farmers in Africa that need a loan to go and, and you know, make their business more productive. And those other people who I think take the view that, that I have, which is we're sort of building toys right now. We're building things that are sort of fun that people who are wealthy and basically can subsidize R&D can use. And gradually, this stuff will get more usable. It'll be applicable to more different use cases. And then we'll have sort of the opportunity for mainstream appeal. I really don't think the technology today is at the point where it can be accessible from a UX or scalability perspective to some of the use cases and some of the people that might benefit most from it. But that is certainly the end, the end goal. There's even people, a couple of protocols today that are experimenting with uncollateralized loans. So there is a system that it gets used in some of these developing economies called a ROSCA. It's like a rotating saving and credit association where let's say 10 people will get together and, and pool their, their money together. And then as individual people in this sort of lending circle need money, they'll be able to borrow from this collective. So it's sort of a very primitive version of a credit union. There's people doing that today on Ethereum where you and I can be you know, different people around the world using a smart contract to sort of form a very primitive credit union. So I think we're seeing the force, the first sort of steps of this maybe approaching something like having mainstream appeal or something that can approach sort of banking the unbanked. But for, for the most part right now, it's a lot of people who are, you know, interested in sort of building interesting toys and, and money games and, you know, they're, they're very bullish on, on Ether or some of these other assets and using these sort of tools as a, as a way to trade as opposed to being their primary bank, though there are people who do that today. The idea of collateralized lending. So I put up $150 of Ether to get $100 of DAI, a stable coin. And then I have a stable coin. It's like kind of like having 100 how people think of $100. Like a dollar is pretty stable. So I can go out with that $100 and treat it as working capital. And I can buy anything with it. Why would I do that, though? Why would I put up $150 to get $100? Well, a lot of people will use it, again, if they want to... If they have a piece of, if they have an asset that they don't want to sell, but they have some immediate term need for capital. So we even see this in the traditional financial systems day where people will take out a auto title loan. So they'll place up their auto title as collateral and get capital to, you know, pay off some immediate term debt while they're getting paid from their, you know, paycheck, for example. Or they'll take out a reverse mortgage. So they'll put up some equity in their home and take out a home equity line of credit. So there's very obvious analogies in our current financial system to some of the things that we see on Ethereum today. I think the idea with a lot of these lending protocols is, well, the quality and diversity and different types of 
collateral is going to grow over time. So while right now maybe we're, you know, using ETH or DAI or any of these other types of ERC-20 tokens or even non-fungible tokens, so you could use a CryptoKitty as collateral, for example, over time, the quality and diversity of these assets is going to grow. And so there is a realistic possibility in the future where you'll have a token that represents, you know, the deed to your house or the title on your car. And instead of going through a bank and instead of, you know, being restricted in, in who can sort of offer you a loan, a smart contract can um, just give you a loan with a single transaction in a few seconds. So I think, you know, again, it's it's sort of in this like toy phase right now where it's something that people who are into the space like to do in their free time on the weekends. It's kind of neat. But gradually, I think we're seeing like the space mature. Even something like DAI has, you know, significant real world appeal today, right? I think a lot of people in some countries that are sort of, sort of slowly beginning to dollarize or maybe that have, you know, really weak local currencies be interested in buying US dollars. And we see US dollars get used as sort of a de facto medium of exchange or, you know, trade at a premium in, in some of these economies today. And I think getting, you know, die at a US dollar that no one can take from you and maybe even no one has to know that you have is extremely valuable. The What's the best analogy to the conventional finance world? Is it it's basically margin trading, right? Like I want to borrow, I have uh, $50, I want to trade Forex, I can do margin trading where I can actually have like whatever, if I have 5x leverage, I can trade $250 worth of my $50. That's the best analogy? I think so. I think certainly we see margin trading sort of emerge as the primary use case for a lot of these protocols today. Even something like DYDX is, you know, while it's a lending protocol at its heart where you have you know, lenders place collateral and you have borrowers or you have lenders lend other assets and borrowers place collateral to borrow. It's very specifically tailored towards highly leveraged margin trading. So with a single transaction, you can take out a you know, 5x, 5x leverage longer short position on Ether, on DAI, on USDC, on any of these different types of assets. I think even with something like MakerDAO, which is sort of the you know largest and one of the oldest lending protocols, you can put down some Ether, withdraw some DAI, and then use that DAI to buy more Ether and to open up another loan and sort of do this recursively a couple times over to get you know 3x leverage, for example. So yeah, I would say margin trading does seem to be the most popular use case today. Again, sort of in that, you know, we're having fun, we're, we're trading. It's sort of a, you know, rich people toys phase, but, you know, gradually this sort of subsidizes R&D and it sort of helps bootstrap this ecosystem. It's sort of like the whole, uh, you know, Tesla grand plan. It's we're going to sell, you know, a Lotus Elise with an electric engine in it, and then we're going to make a very affordable mass market car that everyone can buy. You know, I hear about these speculators, the people who are spending all their time tinkering with these things and riding the ups and downs of the crypto world. Have you met many speculators? Can you tell, take me inside the life of one of these speculators that might actually be utilizing these smart contracts? Yeah, I actually know a number of people who are, you know, some of the largest traders on decentralized exchanges or on decentralized finance today. A lot of the time, it's people who maybe they want to remain anonymous, so they don't want to KYC and go through a centralized exchange. And I think that's a totally legitimate use case in some particular jurisdictions. A lot of the time, it's people who are getting access to products they can't normally get access to. So maybe they aren't an accredited investor, or maybe they don't have a you know margin trading exchange in their own jurisdiction. Well, anyone around the world can open up a MakerDAO CDP and, and margin trade using Maker or Compound or DYDX. So I think there's a there's permissionless and sort of borderless element to it too. I think a lot of people are just fascinated by the space. I think it, it feels a little bit like you know 
seed investing, but open to everyone. I think a lot of people are sort of looking for yield in sort of the current financial ecosystem. And crypto, if you have an edge, is certainly an interesting way to do it. And I would say it's not purely sort of speculative in investing as well. It's not just, you know, I'm buying this asset. I hope that the price goes up, which is how you know we normally think of, of investing, which is sort of capital gains. But there's other ways to, you know, take advantage and, and make money in this space as well. I just put a, a blog post two weeks ago through Dragonfly Research talking about liquidators. Liquidators are a really important piece of this decentralized lending ecosystem in that they ensure that lenders get repaid if, for example, the value of the borrower's collateral begins to drop. So in that scenario that I mentioned earlier, if that $150 worth of Ether drops to $90, well, the borrower can just run away with that $100 that they borrowed and you know leave the lender sort of you know stiffed. And so liquidators look for loans that are starting to become a little bit risky, starting to hit that, you know, on $190 threshold and repay the lenders and take a small fee for doing so. So we see these liquidators who are running these bots, these you know very sophisticated pieces of code off chain by making millions of dollars a year for doing so. Even you know people who aren't sophisticated, who aren't you know don't can't code or, or don't know how to trade, they can be lenders in these ecosystems. So we see you know people making six seven percent on their DAI or on their USDC per year, which is several times more than you get on a high interest bank account in the U.S. Just by Buying some USDC, buying some buying some some DAI, and placing it in one of these smart contracts. So I've friends of mine who know you know nothing about crypto, but they're using products like Instadap or using products like Nua or Argent Wallet, which are very user friendly to use, and just going straight from their debit card into DAI into Compound and earning six or seven percent. So it feels like a bank account almost. Right. The liquidators post was interesting to me, and I think Liquidators is hard to explain over a podcast, mm-hmm. although you did do a show with Laura Shen that was pretty good. And your, I think your blog post was, was quite descriptive, and you had some nice di- little animated diagrams and stuff about these Liquidators. I think the best way to explain it is they, without the Liquidators, you would not have liquidity in the market. I mean, there would because there would just be kind of a fundamental bug in the incentive ecosystem and the other thing that's interesting about it is like, you know, if you think about, okay, you know, think about the crypto ecosystem, it doesn't take much understanding of crypto to understand that, okay, yeah, it makes sense that that lending would take place. If we're trying to recreate the financial ecosystem in a decentralized manner, yeah, lending makes sense. But the idea that if you're also, if everything is also programmatic from day one, you can have these very low level participants that are scripts basically like financial scripts that have a significant impact over the entire ecosystem they scale easily and that to me is a new concept and and that is one thing that the the liquidator idea illustrated to me is there an analogy to the liquidator the idea that there is this kind of bot type entity that adds liquidity that adds subtracts friction from the lending ecosystem. Is there an analog to that in the traditional financial ecosystem, or is the financial ecosystem just so layered with cruft that it is much harder to have these kind of just thin, permissionless bot-type liquidity adders? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the big thing for me about DeFi and maybe crypto overall is no one has a legal contract with anyone that is obligating them to 
you know, do these do these functions, right? No one is going out and signing contracts with liquidators. No one is going out and, you know, signing contracts with miners and having some sort of legal repercussion if they don't do their thing. Simply, all these systems do is write pieces of software that anyone can use and create incentives that, you know, potentially generate profit if, if actors realize those, those incentives and, and, and act on them. So I think what's really cool about, about liquidators is unlike, you know, probably the, the closest analogy would be something like a, a, you know, repo man, right? If your auto title is no good or if you default on your loan, they might repossess your car, right? And then liquidate it to, to repay the lender. But that's a separate company that the lender, you know, pays money to and there's some sort of, you know, real sort of frictionful interaction between. Whereas with liquidators, you know, simply something all, all something like Compound or DYDX or, or MakerDate is write the code, make it transparent and, and accessible to anyone. And we've sort of seen this this blossoming ecosystem of people realize that, hey, I can make money doing this and then act accordingly and and sort of make the whole system work. Again, maybe similar to how miners in some of these proof of work chains are just finding opportunities to make money using the incentives provided to them and then going out and doing it and in doing so keeping making the whole system work. So incentive and mechanisms and design is really key to making these protocols function. And I think we're seeing it work reasonably well so far in DeFi. Right. And so I think what you're saying there is there really is no analogy in the traditional financial world. The best analogy is probably large companies of probably 50 at a minimum people because there is so much cruft in the traditional financial ecosystem, including like legal contracts, which didn't used to be cruft, but now they're just kind of cruft because if you can have, I mean, assuming smart contracts can actually fulfill the interface of financial obligation, then we don't need legal contracts and we don't need a legal department and we don't need a bookkeeping or documentation department because all this stuff is book kept on the blockchain. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the the origin of the smart contract concept, right, is take a maybe somewhat ambiguous, somewhat tricky to actually execute legal contract, codify it in some way, and this is where the whole you know, code is law sort of ethos comes from, and then this thing will just execute by itself based on predetermined sort of immutable terms that, 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 we've, that we've agreed to. And I think DeFi is just sort of the, the latest manifestation of this where it's no longer you know, a will or a trade or you know, something more, more generalized, but it's you know, loan terms that are now just getting executed automatically um, without having to go through an intermediary to do so. Is all this stuff built on Ethereum? There are a couple sort of burgeoning other ecosystems, but for the most part, we're seeing most things that happen on Ethereum today. And I think that's happening for a couple different reasons. One, just Ethereum had a head start. It was sort of the first legitimate smart contract platform. And that sort of inherently gives you a little bit of time to sort of build up this ecosystem. But I think also we just see a lot of network effects between these different protocols. So there's a lot of what we call you know, composability or sort of you know money Legos between these different protocols where I'm not just using Maker. I'm not just using Compound. I'm not just using DYDX. I'm not just using 0x or Uniswap or any of these protocols. I'm using all of them in tandem, and there's a lot of you know, there's a symbiotic relationship between many of them. So, for example, in the liquidators blog post, I mentioned that people who liquidate under collateralized loans, for example, won't just hold on hold on to the collateral, which might be ether or something highly volatile. They'll immediately go and sell that on a decentralized exchange to sort of lock in their profit. So they'll take that ether, flip it for Dai or USDC, and boom, they've sort of locked in that that five percent profit that they were you know in, in theory going to get, and that is only possible because these these different types of actions can be composed atomically in a single transaction. So I can, in one transaction, 
you know, get a loan myself for Ether. I can liquidate someone's undercollateralized Ether loan. I can then get some discounted Ether and go sell that on a, on a decentralized exchange for, for DAI or USDC and then repay out that additional loan, that, that original loan that I took out. And that's all happening across many different protocols. And so if you want to go and recreate that on another chain, it's going to be really difficult because you don't have these, these, this sort of intertwining effect between all these different protocols. I think additionally, you know, the sort of the fundamental basic unit here is you need a good piece of collateral that can sort of roughly help stabilize the entire ecosystem. And I think we're seeing Ether emerge as like a reasonably good piece of collateral. It's still you know, somewhat volatile in the grand scheme of things, but you know, less volatile than maybe some of other assets on some of these other chains. So there is sort of a you know, sense that if Ether can do reasonably well, then this sort of provides a nice foundation to create other types of tokens and other types of assets and sort of support all these different types of protocols that need to exist. And the fact that there is some volatility to Ether, is that good? That's, that, that drives the market, right? That drives the collateralization market. In a sense, yes. I think a lot of people might not talk about this, but I think, you know, from my perspective, unless there is a broader belief that, you know, Ether, that, that people will speculate that the price of Ether will go up, you, it's hard to see why someone would want to margin up on Ether and take out a loan against it, right? Why would I margin trade on, on the price of Ether if I don't think the price of Ether is going to, you know, uh, go up in value? Yeah. And so there is a little bit of that fundamental underlying assumption, which is also why we see people also look for different types of collateral to, to potentially use for these loans. So MakerDAO, the, again, the largest sort of you know, credit facility, lending, lending protocol on Ethereum, recently underwent a large upgrade to what they call multi-collateral DAI. So no longer can you do, only have to use Ether to mint new DAI, but you can also use, I believe, Brave token. BAT is the first one that they added as collateral. So you can take out a loan against your BAT using, and mint DAI, and the plan is to add new types of collateral as well as new types of synthetic assets that you can mint against your underlying. So if we think about, you know, why, why die, right? Well, there's a piece of code somewhere off chain that is constantly reading in the price of US dollars or the, the, the price of Ether and DAI on chain. And we're using that to sort of stabilize the peg. Well, you can put in any arbitrary price feed in there, right? And then create a, a new version of DAI that is pegged to this new arbitrary price feed. So you could, in theory, produce a synthetic Bitcoin instead of a synthetic US dollar or a synthetic S&P 500 or really any type of asset that might not even exist today. You could create a synthetic version of your apartment or your rent. And as long as you can create a liquid market around it, in theory, you can create anything you want. So I think we're also just starting to see like the, the market move to broader types of collateral, broader types of synthetics away from just, just Ether today. Providing some salve to people who are afraid of financial abstractions, maybe because they read too many Michael Lewis books or something. Can you explain why synthetics and derivatives actually serve a useful purpose in the normal financial ecosystem and and perhaps how removing frictions from them and having analogs in the crypto ecosystem could have another order of magnitude of usefulness? Yeah, definitely. I think... There's a couple different reasons why someone might want a synthetic asset. I think at a most fundamental level, it's just getting access to an asset that maybe you normally couldn't otherwise get access to. So maybe you're in India or maybe you're in China and you want to buy, you know, U.S. stocks. Well, you, you probably can't unless you're going through some crazy vehicle, but you can probably buy a synthetic version of a U.S. stock, right? That's something that is available to everyone and you don't need to 
you know, be a U.S. citizen to purchase a synthetic asset if it's if it's available in your country. So I think just access to these things is is one. I think there's another flavor of that, which is just socioeconomic access. So even in the U.S., I think we've seen a lot of the you know best performing assets in the past few years come from early stage technology investments, which unless you have to be an accredited investor in order to invest in, and many people aren't. And even then, getting access to those things is, is somewhat difficult. So, you know, you if you're not an accredited investor today, cannot go out and buy that, you know, pre-IPO um, Stripe stock that maybe you, you want to buy, or maybe you just don't have access to these kinds of things. And so with synthetic assets, as long as you can find, you know, counterparties for, for both sides of the trade, which generally speaking, you can at a certain price point, you can just allow people to get access to things that they maybe they couldn't otherwise get access to. I think, you know, to, to that note, I think synthetic assets are also a great way to create hedging opportunities. So I also had sort of a, a tweet storm about this a, a while ago, but I think, you know, one sort of problem that we, that we see in the U.S. and probably in the world more, more broadly is sort of the, the insanity around financing uh, housing, housing decisions. A lot of people don't think about it, but they're sort of naturally short housing, right? You naturally want the price of housing to go down. But generally speaking, the way you, you purchase housing is by taking out this crazy margin position, which you know, we, we call a mortgage. Well, wouldn't it be interesting if there were a way to potentially hedge the downside risk of that mortgage, right? What if you could take out a margin position, take out a mortgage on your house, but you know, let's say you want to hedge against downside uncertainty, maybe take out a short on your house, and then you've sort of locked in maybe some, some home equity or locked in some value against you know, some of the, the value that built up. Or similarly, let's say you're an early startup employee and you have a bunch of options or you have a bunch of RSUs and you're looking for some way to, again, lock in some of the value that's accrued. Well, a lot of these companies will you know, put, put locks or restrictions on how those early pieces of, of equity can be sold or transferred or used. Well, what if you could you know, take out a short on you know, your early stage equity and then sort of lock in you know, the, the price that, that maybe you, you really desire to, to sell at? So I think you know, permissionless, I think it's a bit like the early web in a sense where if you look at what people were doing with you know the early internet, everyone thought there would just be sort of digital versions of what we have in, in the analog world, where you know the, the digital newspaper is the classic example or digital magazine. But I think in reality, what was really cool about the internet is that we had totally new pieces of content, totally new pieces of way of, of of engaging that previously people didn't even imagine. So I think you know the early the current financial system is maybe a bit like sort of the pre-internet era, where because we don't we like almost don't even really know what we don't know. We sort of have to rely on breaking down these barriers and giving entrepreneurs access to these these financial primitives in order to get creative and, and sort of find that consumer surplus and really let the market speak as opposed to restricting what was available. I think someone once had this like YouTube versus TV analogy, and I, I kind of like that quite a bit, where instead of selecting from, from, from five different channels and 25 different programs, you can select from a million different programs that anyone around the world can, can sort of invent. The first job I had out of school was at an options trading company, and I, I only spent five months there, so I did, did not contribute very much or learn very much. But one thing I did learn that was pretty profound is the idea that in traditional finance, almost any thesis you have can be expressed through a combination of derivatives and conventional assets. Like if you buy a put, plus go long on a stock, you cap your downside and capture all the upside. And that's something most people don't understand. They think, okay, stock market, pure speculation, but there are ways of doing this that you really cap your downside and can express a thesis in a very comfortable fashion. 
unfortunately, like that's pretty hard for the retail investor to do is my, is my understanding. Like I looked into doing this a little bit, not very significantly. So I'm sure, sure people can correct me if I'm wrong, but like, it's not like easy to manage options because they have these expiration dates and it's like, gets very complicated very quickly, becomes a full-time job very quickly. And so you're like, ah, you know, forget it. I'll just put my money in betterment or whatever and earn no money and, you know, forget it. And, you know, part of the reason is just because there's tons, I mean, there's not a lot of options because I think there's just a lot of regulation and like programmers don't really have access for building these kinds of things. And so you do to create a compelling picture. And like, I think the example you gave with your mortgage, like today you can take out a reverse mortgage along with your mortgage, but I don't know. I assume, I know nothing about getting a mortgage, but I assume that like the mortgage getting experience is pretty terrible and does not include like a very easy like upsell check a box and get a reverse mortgage for five dollars additional you know it's, i don't know if you, if you can correct me if i'm wrong I, I think the process is getting better but i think ultimately it feels very much like like band-aids right it's like we're, we're sort of piecing together what an ideal system looks like if you could design everything from scratch today using sort of what we have as opposed to you know, sort of going you know, from first principles and thinking like, well, what would an ideal financial system look like? I think that was something that kind of really tickled me about the, the Plaid acquisition, which is, you know, I think Plaid's a, a great product. Obviously, they're solving a real problem for consumers. But if you think about what they're, they're doing at the end of the day, it, it's sort of like hacking together this kind of like really like weird reverse engineered API on top of these oh, banks, God, yeah. which is like, like, why don't we just have an API for banks? <laughs> right. Like, like that, that's goofy. So I think yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, it, it is it is some of these things are possible today, but it's the permissionless element that is that is really key. Like, you know, imagine that, you know, sort of in the 90s, early 2000s, you had to go and register your website with the FCC before you could, you know, publish it. And that cost thousands right. of dollars. And right. you know, yeah, like we would definitely not have the Internet that we have today. It's the fact that, you know, for five bucks, someone can go and you know, spin up an EC2 box and you know, spin up a web application from, from their dorm room, that's really the key. You can't have, you have to let the market figure out what it wants. And talking a little bit about how this makes its way into mainstream, like obviously we only, we can only speculate at this point, but like, you know, today I've got the terrible mortgage buying experience. I've got the experience of like buying a flight and like I can one click to buy flight insurance for, you know, one eighth of the cost of the ticket, which makes no sense. Why would I ever buy that insurance? I should, there should be an open market for my flight insurance. It should be much easier to buy. It's impossible to get there in the near future, but someday with decentralized finance, perhaps we get there. Although even on the road there, there's going to be, there will be regulatory burdens at some level, right? Like there will be some layer at which the consumer application that is leveraging decentralized finance is going to have to be inserted because we don't want, I mean, for all that you and I love about the, the wild west of the crypto ecosystem, I personally don't want random person in the Midwest buying a bunch of whatever name your terrible token that people lost their shirts on in the speculation days and like... So I, I don't know. Do you do you have a perspective for how this stuff makes it into the mainstream? Yeah, I, I totally agree on. I think a lot of people got burned in like 2017, 2018 in terms of you know being taken advantage of by I think people who were maybe acting a bit maliciously when they were going out and, and doing these token sales. I think you know for the most part, I think we've seen regulators 
like behave pretty favorably towards some of the stuff that we're seeing in in DeFi, at least in in the U.S. If you think about you know what the SEC or CFTC or you know, FinCEN's job is, it's mostly to make sure that malicious actors are not you know being able to like like terrorists are not being able to get access to you know financial services, and then it's mostly consumer protection. So making sure that people are not being defrauded. So um, I can't go out and you know lie to investors and sell an illegal security. That's when the SEC would step in. But in a scenario like Compound, for example, or, or MakerDAO, when it's people sort of you know two actors with their own agency making their own decisions and you know sort of making what's a pretty healthy you know, financial transaction. With the limited resources that they have, I, I'm a bit skeptical that they're going to go in and try to step in, and even if they could, try to you know shut down something like these these like credit facilities. I think beyond that, in my mind, you know, I think you will probably see you know sort of some back and forth in regulation, and there's a lot of good people working on you know educating lawmakers on some of the progress that's been making we've been making in, in the crypto ecosystem over the past two years, but. In many respects, I feel like this is a bit inevitable, and it's just a question of will this, the U.S. be the place where this happens, or will this happen in some other jurisdiction? I think we're seeing you know pretty strong appetite for some of these products across Asia, some parts of Europe as well, and so it's almost like this is going to happen, and it's a question of what role the U.S. is going to play in it. I think many people saw you know two months ago, three months ago, Xi Jinping's entire speech around blockchain plus and the DCP, and so China did not see that. Yeah, yeah, basically. You know, in a nutshell, she gave a, a speech in which she describes, you know, blockchain as an essential strategic investment for China. And so there's a whole frenzy right now in, in China trying to figure out how to make blockchain happen, how to make crypto happen in China. So I think people are sort of waking up and, and realizing that this is going to be a thing and just trying to figure out where, where they actually slot in. Coming at this from a different angle, the Ethereum question there's another post in your Dragonfly research blog about Ethereum scalability issues. And I've talked to Hasib a little bit about this and done some shows on it too, that I had so much trouble understanding what the Ethereum scalability strategy was. Now, I've had trouble understanding a lot of the stuff in the crypto ecosystem. So it's it, it's if you don't go really deep on this stuff, it becomes very hard to parse what is just like technical reality that's kind of hard to understand and what is like repurposed white paper jargon that is total fiction and the ethereum scalability story seemed like it was somewhere in between the very thin realm between those two things and for whatever reason, the scalability story has not worked out, like whether for reasons of it's too hard to implement or they did something technically wrong. Do you have a, a concise perspective on why the Ethereum... Sc- Actually, first of all, I should ask you, what does it mean at this point that, it's, that Ethereum has not scaled? Like, is it just very slow? What What's the consequence? Yeah. So first of all, I totally agree with your point, which is it's really difficult in this industry to know like what is legit and what's not and what's important and what's not. And even I, frankly, get it wrong sometimes. So it's, it's very tricky. I think, you know, Ethereum is, I think, fortunate in that it's found a couple use cases today, like in DeFi, that sort of work with the current version of Ethereum, which is Ethereum, you know, 1, Ethereum 1.0. I think uh, it's probably DevCon 2018, DevCon 4, where there's sort of growing consensus. Well, so first of all, backing up a little bit, 
I think you know one thing that we were seeing in crypto is like you're sort of seeing research, you're seeing open source research, right? You're seeing research out in the open. A lot of the problems that people are trying to solve today, we don't have answers for, and we might not have answers for. And so I think what we're seeing is you know people find promising areas of research, explore it, find out maybe it wasn't so promising, and, and sort of roll back up the decision tree. And then we find another area of research. And so I think what we're seeing is maybe something that is normally takes place in academia, sort of behind you know closed doors for for most people sort of occur out in the open with large you know financial incentives surrounding the outcome of this research so there is a bit of a weird dynamic around ethereum research i think with respect to ethereum scalability today certainly you know not an expert and i recommend people you know read the blog post by by ashwin who's, who's also on our team but the current sort of track is, is basically two different tracks one is uh, what they call sort of ethereum 1.x which has been going on for the past two years or so which is let's make Ethereum 1.0 work as well as it, as it possibly can. So these include improvements to the EVM and improvements to Ethereum consensus building, improvements to the way you know, state is stored in Ethereum. And I think so far they've been pretty successful in that regard in terms of eking out more efficiency and, and more success with how Ethereum exists today. I think Ethereum 2.0, which is what a lot of people spend time talking about, and I think what a lot of these sort of third wave blockchains are trying to potentially compete with and, and displace, mostly compete on new novel methods of creating what they call side chains or, or layer two scaling solutions, which are sort of these separate pieces of code, these separate little mini consensus mechanisms that run and then settle back on the main chain at some point. So you can have you know hundreds or thousands of these different little mini you know, consensus mechanisms running off chain that eventually settle back onto the main chain at some point. And so a lot of the debate and a lot of disagreement around L2 scaling is which method makes the most sense for running these sort of separate chains, these separate consensus mechanisms off chain. Zero knowledge proofs are quite popular. They have sort of their own pros and cons. What they call optimistic rollup is is really getting popular now. And that sort of has its own pros and cons. Plasma was quite popular for a while, but I think we're seeing it has a lot of limitations. And so a lot of research is being pulled back in that direction. I think ultimately though, like at the end of the day, ideally this stuff, and I think it will not really matter for end users, right? It's about finding some sort of end application that allows people to do something that they could normally not otherwise do. And I think we're seeing Ethereum find those potential use cases today where it's something that works with the current level of scalability and yet still has mainstream or, or sort of broad appeal. One example that sort of came out recently was Pool Together. Pool Together is a what they call a prize link savings account, or they call it, so call it a no-loss lottery. So unlike with a normal lottery where you buy a ticket for a few bucks, if you win, cool, you get a huge jackpot. If you lose, you've wasted a few dollars. With Pool Together, it's more like a savings account where you can put 20 bucks in, I can put 20 bucks in. We pool all of our you know big pot together, and then we lend it out on some of these lending protocols. So we're earning you know, five, 6% interest on Compound or on D by DX. And over the course of a week with millions of dollars, that can amount to several thousand dollars, right? You're earning several thousand dollars a week just on interest. And then that 20 bucks that you put in now buys you the opportunity to potentially earn that interest. So instead of earning, you know, maybe a million dollars, you could potentially win several thousand dollars this week for that $20 deposit. And that $20 still comes back to you. You can still withdraw it. And so it's, it's a bit like a savings account in that regard. So this is something that was built by a small team using, again, sort of the, these primitives and piecing them up together into a simple application. I mean, they're, they're growing reasonably well, and they've added you know, several thousand users over the past few weeks. So something that works today, something that is sort of this, this primitive, you know, high latency, you know, low throughput product, but that can still get mainstream um, appeal today.
One of the things I, I've had trouble understanding, and I, at this point I'm content to know that there's a rational explanation for this that has more to do with community. But like, what I never understood is why didn't everybody just treat Bitcoin as the assembly language of the crypto ecosystem and do all the layer two stuff on top of that? Yeah. You could have done that, or yeah. you still could do that, or I think some people are doing that. I think that's what Rootstock does, but like, why doesn't that happen? Yeah, this is a, a very popular piece of debate, which is why isn't there DeFi on Bitcoin, or why aren't there some of these other things happening on Bitcoin? And what's interesting is, I mean, Vitalik originally- Colored coins. Yes, yes, there was colored coins on, on, on Omni, and, and there were all these sort of attempts to make this thing work. But I think ultimately, you know, I'm trying to remember the, there was a, there was one specific debate on Bitcoin. It was not the I forget the exact uh, sort of upgrade, but I, I think it sort of cemented Bitcoin's ethos, which is we are robust and we are decentralized pretty much at all costs. We optimize for decentralization. We optimize for robustness. We are not going to break. We're not going to have bugs. We're not going to have a DAO style hack that we have to fork out, which is what happened with Ethereum. Yeah. We are hard money, and I think. Obviously, that has a lot of benefits, right? I think that's sort of why Bitcoin has been able to cement its, you know, store of value narrative. That's why a lot of people choose to hold Bitcoin because it's a scarce asset that is not going to change its cap in theory, and it's not going to break. But that comes with the downside, which is it's it's somewhat in, inflexible. And I think simultaneously, the community that's circled that's been built around Bitcoin sort of also is you know sort of in line with this this ethos. So, from a technical perspective, there are companies that are trying to do it, you mentioned you mentioned Rootstock, but we haven't seen much traction. So it's less of a technical issue and more of like a political issue almost. Yeah. So that's part of the reason why you know Ethereum was was sort of formed because Vitalik realized he couldn't build what he wanted to build on right. top of Bitcoin. And so Ethereum sort of came out of that. Right. I mean, it just looks like like the perfect base layer to build on top of. Like, yeah. okay, yeah, it's inflexible and that's fine. Like we build all of our software out of zeros and ones. Like nobody's, no longer do we have people advocating, let's do the ternary system. Let's have zero, one, and two. Like maybe it's better. Like we've decided we're not going there. Just, we're just not. And that didn't happen with Bitcoin, but maybe it will in the future. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Uh, who knows? I think there's, it's still so early in, in the space. Right. You know, I think, Someone was tweeting the other day that like, you know, the market cap for like Bitcoin is less than the value of cash that like Apple has on hand. So it's it's a very, very early days. And I don't think, you know, Ethereum's battle for smart contract supremacy has been won. I don't think, you know, Bitcoin not having any smart contract language is 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 definite. But as I think these things sort of come from people and the, the political climates that form around these different projects um, sort of produce what the sort of the next evolution of that project is going to look like. And I think for Bitcoin, they've really gone after this really hard store of value and now in beginning to sort of develop um, privacy use cases as well. And today's applications of Ethereum, were you saying that like basically where Ethereum is today, scalability wise, that is bottlenecking the next, maybe the next phase of applications? People have different views on this. Personally, I think when you look at the transaction fee marketplaces and, and the block utilization on, on Ethereum, it's not so congested today that, you know, ideally what you want to see is tons of latent demand. You have people banging down your door, trying to get in, and then it's clearly you have a supply and scalability problem, and then you sort of focus on that. I think with Ethereum today, 
you know, we saw that in certain periods, for example, when CryptoKitties launched in, in 2017, blockchain was you know, massively congested because people were trying to buy CryptoKitties, auction CryptoKitties, you know, breed CryptoKitties. Um, and then we were seeing people, you know, spend, you know, tens of dollars per transaction and it would take hours to get mined. That's, that's true demand, right? We don't see that today. You can get mined pretty quickly for, you know, a few cents. I think really what the L2 stuff is about is about capacity building. It's something that we know is going to happen if we want to sort of realize the vision for Ethereum, for this global financial ecosystem. But in my opinion, I don't think we're seeing so much demand today that like that is definitely the bottleneck. I think it's a lot more about can we build applications that, that people actually want such that we can get to that point where we have people you know banging down the door like we did with, with CryptoKitties. You worked at ZeroX. We've been talking about the lending platforms. Decentralized exchanges are another area of, I guess, that gets categorized as DeFi. What is the purpose of a decentralized exchange? Yeah. So I joined Dragonfly somewhat somewhat recently, but I used to lead product at, at ZeroX, which is a decentralized exchange protocol on Ethereum for about two years. I think the narrative around DEX has, has shifted around a lot over the past two or three years. Decentralized exchange used to be, well, first of all, just the, the nature of decentralized exchange has changed pretty dramatically. There used to be, or there are still are decentralized exchanges that are designed for trading Bitcoin peer-to-peer. So instead of sending you know your Coinbase into your Bitcoin into Coinbase and my Bitcoin into Coinbase and your Ether into Coinbase and having Coinbase basically give us IOUs and having to trust Coinbase to perform the trade correctly, you and I can just trade directly peer-to-peer without a middleman and custodying our funds by ourselves the entire time. And that is sort of the, the genesis of decentralized exchange, which is it's peer-to-peer exchange without a middleman. And this was for good reason, right? I think a lot of people in the crypto community were personally hurt or, or scarred by the Mt. Gox collapse in 2011, where they you know, maybe lost you know, thousands or millions of dollars in, in Bitcoin in this defunct insolvent exchange. And that sort of spurred this, this idea, which is, what if we didn't have to trust an exchange to hold on to a Bitcoin for us? What if you and I could just trade peer-to-peer like email, right? We can just, you know, that's sort of, sort of the purpose of, of the internet to a certain extent. And that, I think, was a really popular line of thinking and a really popular source of demand through 2016, through 2017, through 2018. But I think around 2018, we saw the centralized exchange market mature a lot. We saw a lot fewer hacks. We saw a lot of legit exchanges get insurance or have some sort of you know repayment policy, and you know even something like Binance, which which did suffer a hack in I believe 2018, just repaid everyone. So exchanges are sort of self-regulating; they're getting a lot more legit. And now you know you you could make the case that you know for a lot of retail users, it, it might be safer to hold your you know crypto assets on something like Coinbase or on Binance or using a custodian than it is to just like you know, keep it in your MetaMask or keep it on like a paper wallet in your house. So I think self-custody, it's also, it's a bit of a hard sell when you think about it to reach mainstream appeal. It's, hey, you know, for this thing that is very, very unlikely to happen, we made it a hundred times even less likely to happen, right? It's like tail, <laughs> tail risk insurance. Right. It's really difficult for humans overall to, to think about, you know, tail risk insurance. And so that is also just a really difficult selling point. And so in sort of 2018, the narrative started to shift a lot more to this permissionless innovation concept. So we can create exchanges for any different type of market that might not get listed or might not make sense for a centralized exchange. So things like video items or synthetic assets or sort of, you know, long tail tokens that are maybe too small to warrant trading on a centralized exchange. 
as well as this, this programmability element, which I think is, is really key, where, as I sort of mentioned in the, in the liquidations example, we can, in a single transaction, go from you know, liquidating to getting an asset to selling it immediately, all atomically without having to you know, go through a central party to actually do that trade. And I think programmatic access to exchange without having to go through a custodian is, is really novel and, and really sort of a, a key selling point of DEX and something that a centralized exchange can really, can really never do when you think about how they're architected and how they're built. So I think these two things have really started to propel DEX. The DEX narrative going into 2019, where it's much more about, you know, I think Uniswap has done a really good job at this, where people can do personal token sales. So for example, I can, you know, mint a token that's worth one hour of my time, and I can put it into a, you know, Uniswap liquidity pool, and then anyone can buy it, anyone can sell it. I have to go through a listing process on a centralized exchange. And then simultaneously, I can, you know, for example, buy that and then send it to you in one single transaction to sort of do, a, you know, a purchase of your of your one hour of time. Something that, again, is not really feasible with a, with a centralized exchange architecture. So those two things really have, are sort of guiding decks going into 2020. I think we'll see, you know, who's getting traction, who's getting adoption yeah, in, in this year. But it's all way too early, right? Like this, that's application. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to, you know, to uh, indict your two years of 0x effort. I mean, Bitcoin isn't even decentralized, right? Like it's all, like the mining pools are centralized. Like we don't even have insurance against tail risk at the base layer. Why would we build entire pieces of infrastructure that are decentralized when we don't even have the base layer figured out? Yeah, so I think... Some people would contest the Bitcoin is centralized thing. I think when you dig into it, it is a bit more decentralized than than people would would give it credit for. Sure, you for. can fork it and like that's yeah, great. Yeah. And I think if anything, decentralized exchange is the area where it's traditionally you know an action that is somewhat frequent that people are used to getting for really you know cheap. So you can go on Binance today and, and make thousands of trades, and it's really inexpensive. And it's really fast and it's really convenient. It's using something like, like even Robinhood for retail traders is really slick. And a decentralized exchange, I would say, even today, it's not super slick, right? You're paying a few cents, maybe worst case you're paying a dollar to trade when you're waiting for that transaction to get mined. And so I think decentralized exchange is an area that definitely suffers from sort of a lack of scalability today where the current solution is in many respects you know, inferior from a UX perspective to using a centralized product. And so it's had to really lean into these other two elements, which are permissionless market access as well as programmability. So I agree, like I don't expect to see a DEX kill Coinbase in, in 2020 or, or 2021 even. But ultimately, you know, it sort of comes back to this question, which is sort of like what DeFi and crypto are doing overall, which is, you know, do we think that, you know, payments and exchange and lending should be, you know, free public services and goods the same way, you know, many open protocols on the internet are today? Or should they be companies that, you know, we, we pay for? And I think now we have the technology to build these as free open source utilities that are open to the public. And I think, if you come at this again from first principles, like that's very obviously like how this thing is going to go, right? There's no reason that like this current financial system is like the optimal solution. Like this is clearly, you know, the end game for finance. It seems way more likely that this will just be sort of this, you know, omnipresent part of our lives as opposed to a separate thing that a separate company runs. It's just unfortunately taking the base case too far too fast. It's like saying Larry Page has flying car companies. Shouldn't we have flying parking lots? Like probably not yet. Yeah, a lot of people in crypto, I think, have struggled with timing. A lot of companies, 
even a lot of the things that we're talking about now, people were talking about, you know, Bitcoin talk back in 2013, 2014, or, you know, there were early decentralized <laughs> right. exchange. Yeah, people, it, timing is really hard. You don't know how the market's going to react. You don't know what macroeconomic conditions are going to look like. You don't know how the underlying technology is going to progress. Because again, this is a bit of a research project where, you know, some of the cryptography and some of the, you know, consensus mechanisms that are being used have been invented in the past few years. So it's interesting to see sort of this, this connection between, you know, finance, computer science, product all sort of converge and different threads sort of pull at different points. Yeah, and sorting through the truth and the reality is such an interesting... So I think we should get to the crypto investing side of things because that's an entirely new field in and of itself and it's, you know, it gets us a little bit closer to what you're doing today. Tell me something about crypto startup investing that's not true about traditional investing. There are so many things. I'm thinking about what is going to be most digestible for this audience. I think a lot of what we see, so many crypto projects that have gotten invested in or are trying to get pitched are trying to build money. They are trying to build the core currency that they envision is going to like power everyone's lives 10 years from now, which is really, 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 really hard to do. And so if you think about why something like Bitcoin or something like Ethereum Seems pretty legitimate, right? I don't think anyone would say that like, oh, Bitcoin could never be money or Ether could never be money. It's because they've been able to build a really strong community and that's been able to help them decentralize and, and really feel more like public good or like a public service as opposed to being something that's owned by a company. And so I think for companies that are trying to do what we call L1 or sort of core new blockchains, a lot of what they have to think about is how do you build a community and then how do you sufficiently decentralize to a, avoid you know, a lot of regulatory burden. You can't just go out and like, you know, print new shares and sort of have everyone you know, get them. But also have people actually like believe in your, your meme and believe that what you've, you've created is, is money. And that is like really tricky. I don't think many people have been able to do it successfully outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum today. Bitcoin is you know, a really crazy Genesis story, right? It's you know, anonymous piece of code. We don't know who the founder is. And this thing is just sort of, you know, sort of had this sort of grassroots buildup. And today it seems like a legit, I mean, you can buy, you know, Bitcoin futures on, on the CME, which is insane. And so, you know, going from a company raising seed capital from, you know, top Silicon Valley VC funds to being money is a path that few have navigated so far. And I think it's one that's, that's actually really difficult to do. So that's one thing that we look at when we think about L1 investments is, go to market, which in this case mostly means how can they build community and how can they really turn you know, their, their sort of build belief in what they're doing beyond just sort of this core team. It's not just, if you, you can't succeed just being a small company, right? You can't just succeed being totally centralized. So that's one thing. I think another thing obviously is regulation. So one interesting thing about Dragonfly is we're a cross-border fund. So we have about half the team in Beijing, we have half the team in San Francisco. We invest in Chinese companies and help them think about how to expand globally. And we invest in US companies and help them think about how to expand into China. And so I think, you know, one thing that we've seen is, you know, while the US, you know, regulatory environment is not, you know, atrocious, crypto is not banned, it's people aren't, you know, getting thrown into jail for buying Bitcoin or something like that. It is a bit onerous if you're trying to do some of these more sophisticated financial products, and especially if you're trying to sell them to consumers. So a lot of what we look for, I think, is teams that have really good regulatory go-to-markets. So are they you know, expanding outside the US and actually going to markets that are more favorable for 
doing lending protocols? Do they have a clear path to decentralization so they can, you know, get escape velocity and then and then decentralize such that it's going to be very difficult for regulators to maybe, you know, seize control and, and shut the thing down. So I think that is another big thing that we look at, which I don't think many startups have to worry about. Either what you're doing is legal in the U.S. or it's it's not. There isn't sort of this, this, this gray area where you can do sort of regulatory arbitrage, which is what we see some of the most successful crypto projects do today to a certain extent. What about crypto infrastructure companies. So the, like there's Starkware. I heard about one recently called, uh, this is not even like a crypto, I mean, it's kind of a crypto, some crypto API company. I can't even remember what the name of it is, but. Alchemy maybe? They really, Alchemy, that's yeah. it, that's it, yeah. Because look at any of these crypto infrastructure companies, any lessons there? Yeah, I mean, we're investors in, in Starkware. We're investors in Coinmetrics, which is like a data API company. I think, you know, a lot of people, when they see a new paradigm shift in technology, their immediate gut reaction is, well, I'm going to go sell picks and shovels. Right. It's a gold rush. I'm going to, you know, build, I'm going to, I'm going to sell, you know, jeans. Yeah. Right? And I think normally that's a good idea, right? Normally that's a way to sort of capture market beta without taking a very opinionated risk. I think in crypto, it's been a bit tricky for some of these companies to really get great revenue streams and hit good profitability because the market is such that there aren't so many profitable businesses that can, you know, sort of pay large amounts of sums to pay for your business. It feels a bit early where like the market size for people who, you know, might need to, you know, generate as your knowledge proof or might need to, you know, pay for an Ethereum node is not gigantic today. I think there's huge opportunities for it to grow and it probably will grow in the coming years. But again, from a timing perspective, picks and shovels works really well when the market is booming and there is a gold rush. But maybe when there's only, you know, 10 miners, that's actually kind of a tough business. You need sort of volume and you need a lot of customers for these things to be sustainable if you're going for like a SaaS model, for example. So I think, you know, we, we believe in crypto infra. And I think as with any industry, infra is, is generally a good bet. I think with crypto, it's been a bit tricky because there aren't that many firms that can actually go out and, and pay for some of these services or that actually need to go and pay for some of these services. I think also with infra, you know, we're always just looking for companies that have interesting edges. So companies that actually are building a, you know, a differentiated non-commoditized service. And I think that has also been tricky. I think a lot of companies went out and, you know, sort of saw this coming wave of, of staking. So a lot of what they call proof of stake blockchains have been launching recently. And a lot of companies will stake your assets for you and, and take a, maybe a small cut of your staking rewards. But unfortunately, there isn't a huge edge to be gained in that industry, right? There's only so good of a staker you can be. And ultimately, in any you know, industry that becomes a commodity, there's margin compression. So if you can offer the same service that, that I can, then there's sort of a race to zero when it comes to fees. So I think that's another thing that we look at when we look at infra is what is this company's edge or are they just a commodity and then are they going to receive you know, huge margin compression? So I would say those are the two things that we look at for when we look at you know, infra companies specifically. There were some of these, as you were talking, I was thinking of, I swear I talked to some infrastructure companies or infrastructure systems or whatever during the ICO boom that had some kind of infrastructure piece and then they kind of backward engineered having a token involved. Like we're, uh, I was like, I think there was like a CDN plus token company. Like we're going to accelerate everything and just take our token and you'll like it. It's going to be great. And it just made me think of like the, the ICO boom. I was kind of thinking of a where are they now kind of thing. It's been like a couple of years since I did a show with any of these ICO companies. You know, a lot of them were drunk on the ICO boom. Maybe they got rich on the ICO boom. 
what's the state of the aftermath of all that stuff? Like all these companies that like were doing tokens and like they sold their tokens, made a bunch of money, and then kind of woke up the next morning in bed with a situation that they were perhaps somewhat regretful of or could just dry their tears with their money. I have no idea. Uh, tell me what is the state of, you know, I'm sure you must see these people at, you know, crypto conferences or whatever, wherever you spend your time. The ICO shillers, the ICO charlatans, where are they now? I was actually just talking about this with Hasib this morning, talking about, you know, what happened to some of these companies that not even ICO'd, maybe they just raised hundreds of millions of dollars from, <laughs> right. you know, from VC funds. And then where are they now? And I think there isn't, you know, a one story fits all when it comes to this. I think, you know, we've seen some companies that, you know, maybe raised money with not the best intentions go into settlements with the SEC. So this is someone like Ether Delta or someone like Block One, which did the EOS token sale. They, you know, received a lot of regulatory pressure and ultimately had to do some sort of settlement. I think, in my opinion, the settlements were, were quite mild. You know, someone like Block One, which raised $4 billion, had like a $250 million settlement, which, if anything, sort of feels like a, a green light if you want to do a crazy <laughs> token sale, which is, yeah. I think a lot of teams, maybe they did a legit token sale, but again, they were sort of, you know, drunk on Ether. And if they raised an Ether and they didn't do appropriate treasury management and they just held the Ether through sort of the, the downturn, maybe aren't able to keep funding themselves and had to, had to close up shop. So treasury management is also really key when it comes to ICOs. Did you like, you know, keep stuff in USD or did you hedge your risk appropriately or did you just go super long on, on crypto and sort of like, you know, suffer a little bit of that burn? But there are still teams like ZeroX, for example, that are still out there doing really great work. There was just a big Xerox V3 announcement a couple months ago and the launch of Xerox API this week that are, you know, still plugging along, still making great products, still getting a little traction every single week, every single month. I think, you know, it's always hard to, again, sort of do timing correctly, to do go-to-market correctly. But there are a lot of people out there still working on, you know, the initial project that they set up to raise, raise funds for. And, you know, the idea is that technology is maturing, the market is maturing, and at some point, you know, the stuff will sort of come to fruition. I think much in the same way that a lot of startups, you know, had slow burns for, you know, five, six years, and then, oh, suddenly become sort of an overnight, quote unquote, success in, in Silicon Valley. When in reality, they were, you know, going from 1,000 customers to 2,000 customers to 3,000 customers sort of every single month. I think a lot of crypto projects are sort of in a similar boat where they're really? sort of slowly burning behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, that's not going to happen with like the Bloomberg for crypto companies or the... Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to, to everyone. I think a lot of people, you know, probably didn't do the, the best job when it comes to, you know, raising an, an appropriate the, amount the, of funds. The thing that was the dead giveaway were the vesting schedules. Yes. We're like, yeah, yes. we're, we're just, we're vesting weekly. Like, what? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I get it that Silicon Valley 10-year vesting schedules are outdated or what is it, the 18-month vesting schedule or whatever. We should have 10-year vesting schedules. But you do not get to vest your S coin yeah. overnight. Yeah, definitely. I think there were unfortunately a lot of actors like that who, you know, saw a gold rush opportunity, you know, raised some funds that they, they probably weren't going to use, you know, with the best intentions, and then you know, dump their token on retail investors. And it's kind of unfortunate. I think ICOs are, if you think about it, really fucking cool, right? It's For sure. It's decentralized capital formation. That's really really breakthrough. I think the problem is. You know, it was very much abused, and as a result, a lot of people have gotten turned off on crypto or have really negative connotations when it comes to crypto. Right. And so the industry, I think, has spent the better part of the past three years trying to, you know, 
re-legitimize itself and you know pay down the debt basically that was accrued when you know during this 2017 ICO boom. So I think we're seeing you know when it comes to capital formation today, a lot of people going the SAFT route, so sort of similar to a safe, well they'll they'll raise equity and then distribute tokens at a later date, or even just go straight equity and then you know at some point when they get big enough, use tokens as a way to create a liquidity event for investors. Um, and as a way to you know decentralize control or decentralize ownership in what they're building. So I think things have gotten a lot more sober in a, in a good way in the past two years or so. And even a lot of teams, you know, just forego tokens entirely and just go straight equity, which is very a very legit approach. And I, I think, you know, probably something that we'll keep seeing going forward. So I don't know about you, but the crypto boom for me was this crazy moment where I had to come to terms with my own humanity because I bought in and didn't not financially i didn't buy a bunch of terrible coin i did buy some bitcoin ethereum and i don't know i didn't do like fantastically well you know i didn't buy early enough didn't ride the waves uh, super tightly but i I bought some and I, I watched the market and i remember checking my my coinbase app occasionally and but emotionally like getting sucked into a herd mentality and like going to a crypto meetup at a bar in San Francisco and seeing people everywhere and just like talking to people and like, Oh, have you heard about the latest DAG system? Like, no, I haven't. Like, am I, can I get in? Like, should I get in? Like, you know, have they solved the, Oh, they implemented like a new distributed systems thing. And like, I don't know, but I took, you studied computer science, right? The hardest class I took in college was distributed systems class. And you had to read these white papers I could not get through them. Yeah. They were so boring. Yeah. I, I mean, I shouldn't say they were boring. They're extremely important. Like, they're how we have distributed databases and cloud computing and stuff. But it was very hard. Yeah. And you read through these things. You read through Paxos. You're like, okay, this is very, very hard. There's a lot of diagrams. There's a lot of, like, difficult things. And it convinces you. And then you implement it. It's, like, really hard. But it works. And then the crypto white papers look this way. And then the, the market's going up and up and up and up. And you get sucked into it. And you believe, like, maybe is this happening? Is this happening right now? Is it a reality? And then I, I would talk to Hasib and he would say, no, it's it's going to crash yeah, for sure. Yeah. What was your psychology through that period? Yeah. I mean, I've been following you know crypto for quite a while. I sort of got into Bitcoin during college as part of the like graduation requirements for my CS program. You have to do a class and a paper on some interesting element of ethics and computer science. And so I did mine on Bitcoin regulation back in 2012 basically trying to look at existing legal precedent and see, well, how might, you know, the U.S. legal system look at Bitcoin and how might this thing go about being taxed and, you know, how might FinCEN look at this thing? And so that was sort of really when I when I got into it. But I didn't, you know, I sort of was paying attention during 2013, sort of fell out of it after I graduated and sort of went to work full time and wasn't really able to focus on this sort of interesting side project. And I think I really got back into it after I left Instagram in sort of the end of 2016, 2017. Some friends of mine were sort of talking about it and started following it. And I think for me, you know, again, with the computer science background, a lot of it was more the technology to a certain extent, right? Like being able to deploy a smart contract that anyone can use and anyone can build on is, is really cool. But certainly the, the investing wave and sort of the hype wave, I also felt to a large extent, I saw friends of mine get hooked in and, and whatnot. I think... Obviously, there's there's sort of human bubble mentality and, and there's sort of, you know, a lot of papers that have been written about that. But I think to a certain extent, even this, I think it even happens in for, you know, VCs in crypto, which is, it's a bit like Pascal's mugging, where, you know, if you're doing like a really naive expected value calculation, you know, maybe the probability that, 
you know, one of these projects succeeds is really low, but the payoff, the benefit if they succeed is so like extraordinarily high, right? It's right. like, well, maybe this team has a, you know, 0.01% chance of succeeding, but if they win, it's money. And I think that sort of broke a lot of people's way of thinking about valuing these, these companies, right? Like you would never go into a crazy, a bit like the early internet, right? It, you would never go into a crazy frenzy if you're thinking about how to value, you know, some like, you know, legal document management SaaS company because there's only so big that market can be. And right. you sort of know how to value that. Right. But if I tell you, hey, when this company succeeds, it's going to be the currency that everyone uses all around the world. And it's also going to power every single, you know, loan that ever exists in the entire world. Like people aren't used to thinking about how to like value the expected value there. And so that also sort of contributed to the frenzy, which is like, this thing's going to replace money, which is, you know, fucking crazy. I think, yeah, I, I mean, 2017, it felt like so long ago, but at the same time, it was not that long ago. No, it wasn't. Yeah, I, I don't even know what to say that hasn't already been said. Did you get sucked in? Were you an acolyte? Were you a religious acolyte studying white papers at you know, two in the morning? I, I do think that that was actually another very funny thing that you mentioned, which is like people pretending to understand and care about the latest like technical developments. So it's like, <laughs> distributed systems became yeah, cool. Like I, I've sit, sat in those distributed systems classes. There's like, you know, 10 people attending, like even in the classes. It's so, brutal. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. So yeah, I mean, I you know, invested in the zero X ICO, for example, or, or token sale, which was one of the more legitimate, in my opinion, that they actually used the product to sell the token. So it was like you know functional at the time. Yeah. But I definitely didn't go as crazy as, as a lot of people. I think I'm inherently a bit of a skeptic right. at, at heart, I guess. And right. so yeah, like there, it did sort of hurt seeing you know some of these oh, yeah. crazy returns and, oh, and yeah. shit. But something about the whole like just crazy influencer like yeah. the whole, whole sphere about it just really sort of turned me off to a certain extent but yeah i mean again i think we'll see a return of decentralized capital formation i think that's just like too valuable a service to like give up but it will probably return in a lot saner way so it'll be something like people contribute shares into a treasury and that treasury is controlled by the people who contribute to it and that slowly doles out you know funds over time as opposed to you know maybe more like kickstarter as opposed to like having some random token that you have to like ascribe value to, or maybe teams do a, you know, more auction-based approach. So it's let the market dictate, you know, what this thing is going to be worth, what our, what our asset is going to be worth, as opposed to, you know, putting some price on it and then trying to like pump it by getting listed on a bunch of different exchanges and things like that. So I think we'll see decentralized capital formation return, but probably won't look like what we saw in, in 2017. All right, great stuff. Wrapping up the crypto world we should definitely do another show at some point if you want to. Yeah, that'd be fun. I want to ask you a little bit about, so a couple of years ago, I guess probably three or four years ago at this point, I was doing a lot of shows on advertising fraud. You're somebody who spent a lot of time in the ads world. You worked on Facebook ads, you worked on Instagram monetization. And the thing about the ad world that is weird, if you look into it in depth, is it's very hard to know who is a bot and who is a human basically impossible. Therefore, it's very questionable why we are framing everything in terms of CPM, Mm. in terms of consumption of the content. Because if I run an ad on Twitter, and I know that there is some unknown numerator of bots then therefore I also don't know the denominator because it's very hard to know how, how, what is my reach even? Yeah. And I just like, as somebody who spent a lot of time in the ads world and who is also skeptical, debunk my paranoia or 
validate it. Yes. This has certainly taken a big left turn, but I do like talking about ads. Absolutely. So we're, we're wrapping up. We're wrapping uh, yeah, up. Yeah, we got the last good. stragglers in the stadium who yeah, are still yeah, paying yeah. attention. Thanks for tuning in. It's, I mean, it's funny. Like, I think, you know, I was working on ads for about three years across Facebook and IG. And I think during that time, we saw a lot of demand and narrative shift in terms of advertisers. I agree that traditionally the way most types of media get sold, including some of the first, you know, digital ads, billboards, you know, TV, print, whatever, they get sold through reach and impressions, right? It's how many people see this and how many unique people am I actually, you know, going to, to reach with this particular, you know, product. And, you know, there's a very famous quote in advertising, which is, you know, I waste 50% of my ads, I just don't know which. And really the breakthrough it with sort of like double click, for example, back in like 05, was the ability to more accurately measure the result of these ads. So it's no longer just a bunch of people see my ads and then maybe I see my sales improve or some sort of, if you're a brand advertiser, some sort of, you know, magical brand affinity score goes up. You don't, you don't really know. But with, you know, what I spent most of my time working on is direct response advertising. If you click through on the ad and you buy my product, well, like you can't falsify that, right? That's like money in my pocket. And so there was a shift away from just CPM to CPC, so how many people are clicking through, to you know CAC, so or you know CBR. So how much is it going to cost me to actually install this app, to sign up for this you know newsletter, to buy this thing? And I think over my time at, at Facebook, we saw that was sort of the big transition: is helping these sort of legacy advertisers think more tactically about conversions and think about measuring the value that they're getting out of their ads. And ultimately, it's kind of a, I don't want to say simple because there's a lot of very smart, hard people working on it, but it's like a machine learning optimization problem, right? It's, hey, here's all the things that are good. Here's the, like, the value scores that I'm assigning to them. Here's all the inputs. Like, you know, go create some crazy black box that's going to like maximize my, my value on the other side. Right. And then really the question becomes, well, how can we more accurately measure that, that value? And that is sort of the holy grail for advertisers. And that's sort of we're seeing more and more people go to, which is, we're not just looking at installs, we're looking at return on ad spend. We're looking at you know the lifetime value of the people that we're signing up. So a single install is not really worth the same. Someone might sign up and be retained for a year or years. Someone might sign up and uninstall. Someone might, you know, click into my website and buy a shirt. Someone might click into my website and buy, you know, 10 shirts. And so passing all that data back as well as metadata about those transactions to Facebook, to Google, and then allowing them to, you know, ingest that information look at all these other advertisers' information in sort of an abstract way and use that to power their machine learning algorithms it was really sort of the big trend while I was there. I think that's in part why when you look at, you know, year-over-year growth in digital ad spend, I think like literally 99% of it goes to either Facebook or Google. Yeah, It's because they have this big data moat. They're just better at doing these sort of recommendations and, and measurement than anyone else. That was sort of Facebook's whole thing when they started doing digital ads back in probably like 08, 09, when they were trying to like, you know, prove that they can monetize, which is maybe Google has intent, Google has search, but Facebook has identity. And identity is really key for measurement, right? I can track your identity across all these different surfaces. I know that you're a real person because fake people get, in theory, get blocked from Facebook all the time. But with identity, I can more accurately measure the results of my ads. And that was sort of their their go-to-market selling point. And that was sort of why Google had to play catch up when it came to measurement and came to identity. I think... That is really like the trend of, of digital advertising over the past you know three or four years, which is like, how can we basically get as much transparency and ins- inspect this entire like conversion flow, 
as deeply as possible. Like how can we measure every single person at every single touch point and know and you know quantify their their value as much as possible, spit all this data into some huge crazy machine learning pipeline and then spit out, you know, better ads on the other end, which is why like, you know, people say, oh, Instagram ads are so good or Facebook ads are so good or so tailored. It's because they have crazy data about you from all the websites that you visit the purchases that you make, the apps you install, the things you do in those apps. And of course, anyone with all that data is going to be able to like recommend you reasonably good ads. All right. You have assuaged my... We can, we can, we can get paranoia. into it. I do like talking about advertising. It's still a really interesting topic. I mean, the ad fraud stuff that actually does exist is hilarious and malicious. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's still widespread, I'm sure. But that's for another show. Yeah, yeah. Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Great hey, talking. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this was fun. <laughs>